Okay, we're going to get started. Um, I just want to thank everybody for coming on this wet and rainy night. Um, tonight's topic is the regulation of pet food. And this is such an interesting topic that really has a lot to do also um, with human food. And this panel actually grew out of a panel that we did during our, our last year that focused on soy and milk and the labeling um, of food and you know how does that we're the animal law committee and this is also co-sponsored by the consumer law committee and and how does that relate to animals um, and interestingly enough um, we have to give thanks to our animal law committee secretary Sajal Sangvi who introduced um, us to one of our speakers tonight Ellen Freed um, when we were exploring that topic and in speaking about pet food, there's so many interesting and interrelated issues that they're going to, to tell us a lot about. And I'm not going to spend too much time because we need to get to their, their presentation. Um, but I just want to um, ask everyone, you know, this is an, an open forum. Um, we like to hear from all sides um, and to speak respectfully. Um, we're going to hold all questions to the end. Um, thanks also to our, um, the leader of our committee, Chris Walsh, who's here tonight in the audience. Um, and I'm going to introduce our speakers now. So first we're going to hear from Mary Lestra. She's the special counsel in the Consumer Frauds and Protection Bureau of the New York State Attorney General's Office, where she's also a member of the office's Animal Protection Initiative. Prior to joining the Attorney General's office in 2007, Mary Alestra was a staff attorney at the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs and also worked in private practice as a corporate litigation associate. Mary is a graduate of the Cooper Union School of Engineering and the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law. And then we'll also hear from Ellen Freed, and she's an adjunct clinical assistant professor in NYU's Department of Nutrition and Food Studies where she teaches food laws, regulations, and enforcement. Ellen was an assistant attorney general in the Consumer Frauds and Protection and Litigation Bureaus of the New York State Attorney General's Office. She's also consulted with the Center, of Science, Center for Science in the Public Interest and other consumer advocacy groups. Ellen's a graduate of Barnard College and Fordham University Law School, and she earned a master's degree in food studies at NYU. Um, and I'm Barry Wolf, and I'm also a member of the Animal Law Committee. And so without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our speakers. Okay. Thank you very much, Barry. Um, we really appreciate, Ellen and I really appreciate the Animal Law Committee and the Consumer Law Committee inviting us to talk about a topic that we both think is very important and very timely, which is the regulation of pet food. Uh, before we get started, I just have to preface my comments by saying that while I work at the Attorney General's office, the comments I'm expressing tonight are only my comments and are no reflection in any way on the views of the Attorney General's office on this topic. So with that disclaimer out of the way, uh, I think we'll start by just talking about why we're all here tonight and why pet food regulation is relevant to us. 
even if we aren't pet owners, I assume, or pet guardians, I assume uh, many people here might be here today because they do have pets as part of their family. But um, even if you are not a pet guardian, um, we're hoping that the comments today will be something that um, you will find useful. So why is pet food regulation relevant? First of all, pet food is a multi-billion dollar industry. And according to the American Pet Products Association, in 2017, over $29 billion was spent on pet food in the United States. Consumers are faced with a wide variety of options at various price points, as anyone knows who has gone shopping for uh, food for their pets. And we're going to look at several different examples of that tonight. The other reason uh, pet food is a particularly relevant uh, topic these days is because people now consider themselves to be pet guardians instead of pet owners. And as pet guardians, we often want to make sure that our pets are getting the highest quality food possible. Um, and a lot of times we think that the things about food that we uh, find valuable, our pets would also find valuable, such as natural food or organic food or human grade or cage free. So as pet guardians, we're particularly attracted to foods that that have those types of claims. So uh, pet food marketing becomes very important to us as consumers. The other reason, which Ellen is going to, I'll let Ellen uh, introduce, and she'll talk a little bit about now and, and again further in the presentation, is that regulation of pet food also impacts the human food supply. And Ellen, I don't know if you want to introduce that topic for us. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to speak to that. Um, but the, on, the only other thing I would add is I often hear people refer to themselves as pet parents and that they have fur babies, which <laughs> is very true. fascinating. Um, the importance of understanding what happens with pet food is underscored be by the interrelation between pet food and human food. And just part of the, the intertwined nature of it is easy to see when you know that pet food ingredients can be made from human food byproducts. So you're already in facilities where food is being made for both food and then it winds up with your pets. So our food becomes their food. The food gets intertwined in another way because salvaged pet food, and I'm not talking about rejected food that may be adulterated or uh, have something else wrong with it, but let's say it, it's just not selling or for whatever other reason, it comes back to the warehouse. That gets sold to farms to be used as animal feed. So the animal feed is actually pet food that we wind up eating to the extent that the farm animals eat the pet food and then we eat the farm animals. We also have um, another interaction in that humans come in contact with contaminated food which causes danger for people who are elderly or with compromised immune system or young children. And if you're in a house with young children or eccentric people, because I have a neighbor who once came over and wanted to taste the dog food and proceeded to do that, um, people touch it. Sometimes kids eat it. Um, and everybody is busy in the house, usually picking up the poop or cleaning the cat litter. So if you've got contaminated food, it's being spread around the house. And even if it doesn't affect the pets, it could have a terrible impact on humans. So 
pet food, human food, and interaction happens all the time. Thank you. So to prepare for tonight's panel, I did a little shopping and I went to uh, my local pet store and I just wanted to get a sense of the different options that were available to consumers right now. And as you can see, I was able to come back with um, a pretty significant sampling of foods. These are both dog and cat foods and they make various claims that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, claims that are clearly aimed uh, to the humans uh, as opposed to the pets and I have a perfect example of that which is my cat Fred as I was trying to take some photos for tonight's presentation he just demonstrated that he would be happy with any of these foods including the ultra neutro ultra holistic neutro food which he decided to use as a pillow so um, I thought that this slide uh, was a good way of showing that the marketing really is towards the humans in, in many respects what I'd like to start off by talking about tonight is pet food labeling. You know, what information are we getting from the labels on all of these foods? What mandatory information is available to us and also what type of marketing information are we finding these days on labels and, and how do we distinguish these foods from each other? Pet food is regulated at two levels in the United States. First, it's regulated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It's also regulated at the state level, and many states have adopted the model pet food regulations that are established by an organization called AFCO, the Association of American Feed Control Officials. Uh, AFCO is a non-governmental group. It's made up of state and federal representatives and individuals who are directly involved in the pet food industry. And there's a lot of uh, important information on their websites about their um, model rules and about pet food issues generally. So if you haven't um, visited their website and that's something that interests you, I encourage you to do so. I believe it's AFCO.org. So both of these organizations are providing either regulations or guidance for what appears on our pet food labels. So the FDA has four um, items of information that they require on pet food labels. Uh, this is applicable to all animal feeds. First, they require a proper identification of the product, meaning that there should be an indication of whether it's meant for a dog or for a cat. Uh, net quantity statement, a manufacturer's name and address, and a proper listing of ingredients. Now, AFCO has model regulations that are much more detailed than the FDA regulations. And we'll see from the examples tonight that you know, they, they are being followed by uh, manufacturers. Um, they require a product name, a guaranteed analysis, a nutritional adequacy statement, feeding directions, and calorie statements. That being said, if you look at some of the sample foods that I purchased on my trip to the pet store, this is how this information that we just talked about is presented. Uh, in many cases, it can be unreadable. Uh, this, this, I think, would be particularly difficult uh, to decipher if you were trying to get all of the information that we just talked about. I included uh, a larger example. This is a, an actual bag of dry cat food just to show you that if you were able to see it, there are distinct sections of information on um, the pet food packaging and 
they're the various um, categories we talked about. You'll see ingredients, you'll see guaranteed analysis, feeding guidelines, information about the manufacturer. So this is where pet food uh, labeling gets interesting. A lot of people may not realize that there are very specific rules on how pet foods can be labeled. And these labels really distinguish the various foods that you find on the shelves of your pet store. Uh, there are four relevant AFCO regulations relating to the percentage of named ingredients in the products. And we're gonna look at each of these. The first is the 95% rule. The 95% rule is reflected in food that might be called beef for dogs or tuna cat food. When a product has a label like this, at least 95% of the product must be the named ingredient, not counting added water. It's 70% counting the added water. Beef or tuna in these examples should be the first ingredient listed. And if you had something like chicken and liver dog food, the two named ingredients together must comprise 95% of the total weight. In my trip to the pet store, I did not find any examples that met these qualifications. Um, that doesn't mean they're not out there, but um, I did not find them on the trip to the pet store. I found m many examples of the other rules, though. The first one is the 25% or dinner rule. In this, when a, when a product is called a dinner or platter or entree or nuggets or formula, the named ingredients comprise at least 25% of the product, not counting the water for processing, but less than 95%. So that's a significant difference than the, the, the products that meet the 95% rule. The named ingredient is not necessarily the first ingredient in the product when you, have, um, when you have pet foods that are labeled with these terms. And I have some examples here. For example, a chicken and fish dinner cat food must have 25% chicken and fish combined and at least 3% fish. The chicken formula cat food could also include fish. That's important to note. Um, for people who have pets who, let's say, a cat that just doesn't like fish at all, getting a chicken formula cat food may not necessarily solve the problem if it's a chicken formula cat food that fits under the 25% rule. And here's an example. This is a Frisky's Ocean Whitefish and Tuna Dinner. I also found some more creative examples, like a tiny Thanksgiving Day dinner. <laughs> Another great example of how we're marketing to pet parents, or parents of fur babies. <laughs> the next relevant rule is the 3% or with rule. So an example of this would be dog food with beef or cat food with chicken. You actually only need to have 3% of the named ingredient in that situation. Uh, and it needs to be at least 3% of each named ingredient. So for example, a chicken and rice dinner needs to have 3% chicken and 3% rice. And here's an example of uh, a with type of food. I found a Divine Delights with bacon, egg, and cheese. Uh, just so you know, in that product, the first ingredient was actually chicken. So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. And finally, the flavor rule. Uh, this is, for example, a beef flavor dog food. The product must contain an amount of beef sufficient to be detected, and the word flavor must appear on the label in the same size, style, and color as the word beef.
detected by whom? That's a good question. Apparently they have animals that are supposed to help with detecting, detecting these flavors. So, um, so it's interesting. And here's an example. This is Caesar's rotisserie chicken flavor with bacon and cheese. So this is an example of how the rules sometimes combine. I've also included here, although I haven't done an extensive analysis of it for this presentation, but I've left the prices on these products because I think an interesting uh, topic would be how these compare price-wise. But um, unfortunately for tonight, I do not have a comparison by price uh, and, and by the amount of food in the container, but it's just something to think about. Here's another example. This is Blue Divine Delights, uh, porterhouse flavor in savory juices. <laughs> we had fun putting this together. <laughs> okay, so the next item of information you're going to find on the product label is the net quantity statement, how much product is in the container. The FDA regulates the format, size, and placement of that statement. Manufacturer's name and address, that's all that's required on there, but it may also include a toll-free hotline or a website, which would be good for customer relations when you think about it. I think in these days we expect to be able to go to a website or be able to call up and express our concerns or opinions on the product. Ingredient list, all ingredients must be listed in order of predominance by weight. This is important uh, to note about ingredients. There are actually specific legal definitions for pet food that often differ from human-grade food ingredients. So for example, when a pet food is made with real chicken, or it says chicken is the first ingredient, this means that it was made with pet food quality chicken. It is not necessarily the grade of chicken that we would expect in human foods, going to Ellen's uh, point about the differences between the ingredients that are used in pet and human food. And that might be something mm -hmm. maybe you could talk about more. And human grade. Human grade, yes. We will look at that as well. The label will have a statement of guaranteed analysis, which means a minimum percent of crude protein and, oh, something's missing there, and maximum percent of crude fiber and moisture. Some dog foods do include more than that, uh, minimum percentage levels of calcium, phosphorus, sodium, and linoleic acid, and cat foods generally have guarantees for taurine and magnesium and maximum percentage of ash, but that's optional information. Nutritional adequacy statement, this is important. Any product that falsely claims it is complete, balanced, or 100% nutritious is a potentially unsafe product. And this is because pets, similar to infants that rely on infant formula, often are relying on this particular pet food for their full sustenance. Not my pets, they get plenty of my own food, but they could potentially have a situation where the pet is relying on this food for their sole source of nourishment. So it's important that they meet, um, it's important that the nutritional adequacy statement be there to ensure us that this is going to be adequate to um, sustain our pets. Um, the nutritional adequacy statement will also state for which life stages the product is suitable for. That being said, I was interested to, to learn that for, for foods like senior or specific breed foods, there are apparently no rules governing these types of statements, and a senior diet must only meet the requirements for adult maintenance. 
So that's something to keep in mind. I've included here an example of a breed-specific food. Uh, this one is Royal Canaan, and it's made especially for Yorkshire Terriers. So that's very specific. My dog is a Brussels griffin, but she eats this anyway. <laughs> Snacks and treats, products that, a product that does not have substantiation for nutritional adequacy must state that it is intermittent or supplemental feeding only, unless it states that it is a snack or a treat on the front panel of the product label. And anyone who you know, has pets you know, might know like a party mix, for example, would be something that's more of a treat than meant to be actual uh, the sole form of nutrition. Um, and those, those products generally indicate that they are snacks. The feeding directions are based on the animal's weight, so you need to be careful about over or under feeding. Calorie statements. Uh, AFCO requirements were modified in 2014 to require calorie statements. They must be in kilocalories per kilogram and indicate the kilocalories per common unit of food, so of that, you know, of a can or a cup. Um, and they also must specify the method that the manufacturer used to determine the calories, such as a feeding trial or some other form of calculation. So that takes us through some of the mandatory information that uh, you'll find on your pet food labels. What I'd like to talk about next is some recent pet food marketing trends and some optional information that we generally see on pet foods. And what I mean by this is terms like premium, natural, human grade, organic. The question is, do these terms have any meaning in the pet food context? The answer is it depends. <laughs> For example, premium foods. You might see foods like premium, super premium, ultra premium. They are not required to contain different or higher quality ingredients, and they are not held up to any higher nutritional standards. So here's an example. I don't know if you can see the word premium very well up there, but it's right on top of dry cat food. This is an example of a Trader Joe's uh, supposedly premium dry cat food. So it's... it's um, a term we're seeing on the market, but it doesn't have to require any better ingredients. Natural. So AFCO has an official feed term definition for natural. Uh, it's, it's a detailed definition, so I didn't include it here, but if you want to see the exact wording, you can uh, certainly find that on the AFCO website. Generally, it means a lack of artificial flavors, colors, or preservatives, and that nothing has been added that was synthetic unless it was necessary. If the product is labeled all natural or 100% natural, every ingredient must meet the definition. But AFCO does say that natural can apply to a specific ingredient if only the specific ingredient is identified as natural, such as natural chicken flavor. And here's some examples that I found on my shopping trip. This is a petite entree. It's a natural meal for smaller dogs. It says it right under entrees. It's also grain-free, which Ellen will talk about. Here's another example. This one is 100% natural, additive-free additive cat food. And it says only three ingredients. Organic. Organic refers to the conditions under which plants were grown or animals were raised. The USDA National Organics Program has divine, defined organic for human foods, but the pet food definition is still being developed. 
For now, pet foods claiming to be organic must follow human food regulations. They must be made of at least 95% organic materials to be certified organic. I did not find many of these on my pet store trip, but I did find an example. This is Spot Farms Training Bites. Um, you'll see next to the chicken's beak, it says organic chicken, and it also has a USDA certified organic seal at the, I guess that's the lower right-hand corner there. And that bag of treats was quite pricey. I think it was over $10. human grade. There is no official AFCO definition for human grade. According to AFCO, and this I did quote because I think it's important, edible is a standard, human grade is not. For a product to be deemed edible for humans, all ingredients must be human edible and the product must be manufactured, packed, and held in accordance with federal regulations. If these conditions are met for a pet food, human grade claims may be made. If these conditions are not met, then it is an unqualified claim and misbrands the product. Very few companies meet this criteria, according to the materials I've read. I think it's also important to note that human grade does not necessarily mean nutritionally safe for pets. I think that's important because there are many things that we can eat as humans that pets cannot, such as chocolate or macadamia nuts or onions. So we need to keep in mind what human grade um, actually means. It doesn't necessarily mean it's edible. Anyone who's interested in the human grade issue, I refer you to the Honest Kitchen case. It was a 2007 case uh, in Ohio where um, Ohio State had attempted to prevent uh, Honest Kitchen from claiming that their product was human grade and it was actually found that they had a constitutionally protected right to say it was human grade because they had apparently gone through all the standards, uh, FDA procedures to um, get that human grade determination. So something to think about despite the AFCO definition or lack of official AFCO definition. And I'll show you some examples that I think are interesting that are currently on the market. This is Stella and Chewy's grain-free Stella stew. Uh, this is a cage-free chicken recipe and it claims on the, I guess that's your lower right-hand corner, um, to be 100% human grade. That being said, it also claims on the packaging that even though it is 100% human grade, it is made for your pet and was not intended to be eaten by you. So I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure exactly how we reconcile those two statements, but um, that's, uh, it's also a single animal protein diet. I'll just highlight this also, it claims it's crafted in the USA, which are some marketing terms that we're seeing a lot now, and Ellen's gonna talk about why. So, in addition to natural, organic, human grade, uh, we're seeing other claims that um, also have no definition. Um, for example, holistic. I found a lot of uh, pet foods in the pet store that claim to be holistic, and it's really unclear what that means. Um, holistic seems to be a way of life, uh, philosophy, uh, perhaps. Um, I think people agree that probably these foods do not have byproducts, um, but generally a very unclear term, and I'll show you some examples of that. Um, just want to highlight some other ones we're seeing are cage-free, as I said, and in the examples I'm about to show you, I want you to also note that 
packaging is being used as a marketing tool as well. You'll see that a lot of these packages are claiming to be recyclable or they're very transparent, allowing you to see the type of food that's inside, or they're using packaging that's similar to human food or baby food, once again, marketing to the pet parents. Here's one I found an ultra holistic superfood. Unclear what that means. Holistic Delights, Creamy Bisque with Crab and Coconut Milk. And uh, I wrote down somewhere, there's a seal here, there's a gold seal that we can't read. Uh, I'll, I'll find it first later, but it was basically touting that it had been holistic, the gold standard of holistic for the past 40 years. Here's another one, Soulistic. This one is Good Karma Chicken Dinner in Gravy. It's also got natural ingredients for cats, grain-free. This is another example of um, another trend, which is a limited ingredient diet, um, which I think has a lot to do with what, um, what Ellen will talk about. It's also got the Made in USA symbol. It's got the flag on the bottom. So just to show you, that's another example of a marketer considering this to be an important point to um, highlight. And this is the Stella's stew that we looked at before. This is the side panel. It comes in a box. So it's a box sort of like the way you would get soup at Trader Joe's. Uh, so it's packaged like human food in a lot of ways. And you, I hope you can read that it, it claims to have BPA-free packaging and also to be recyclable. So that's an example of how the packaging is being used as a marketing tool to the pet parents. And here's an example of those transparent tubs I was talking about. This is the bottom of the food. So uh, I think a lot of consumers might find this type of food to be more attractive in some ways because they can see the chunks of meat inside as opposed to a can. And uh, I presented these, uh, some of these foods to Ellen's class, to her students, and one student who apparently is a, is a mother pointed out to me that these tubs are very similar to baby food containers that she has. She says it looks exactly like the containers she you know, buys for baby food and also um, pointed out that these kind of Tupperware containers make people feel like, you know, our own food, like, you know, how we package our own leftover food. So um, definitely some elements of marketing to humans here. So as I said, the two other marketing claims that we're going to talk about tonight, and this is a good segue into Ellen's material, is made in the USA and grain-free. A lot of the examples I showed tonight have both of these labels, and Ellen is going to walk us through why that is becoming much more popular, sure. one of the reasons. Okay. Yes. Can Shall we you, switch over? Sure. Can okay. bring up, um, oh, your presentation. Mary did cover a lot of the information that I'm going to 
either augment or go back to the historical basis for it. But I do want to say at the outset that I feed my pet, a dog, um, Honest Kitchen, which Mary mentioned. I wasn't even aware of the lawsuits when I bought the food. And I've watched the evolution of the advertising on the package. And right now on top, they have a, I wish I had brought it, but I didn't. It says the first ingredient is truth. So sometimes it, it that in, in, in the legal terms would probably just be called puffery and wouldn't be the type of claim that would get an, uh, a marketer into trouble. I, I know it, with the various uh, claims that Mary was talking about and in different seminars that I've been to about food and the marketing of food, the lawyers are often described as the place where the marketing dreams go to die because <laughs> <laughs> the marketers make these incredible claims and the lawyers say, we don't think so, that's not going to be such a good idea. So what I wanted to do was bring you through some history of how we've gotten to, is it which way is up? This way? Okay. How we've gotten to where we are and some of it gets a little um, unflavorful, let me put it that way. Uh, and I'll be talking about some of the enforcement actions that have been taken both in the, uh, the realm of advertising when there's been misbranding or uh, misleading, deceptive statements made on, on, claim, on uh, food packages and also when there's been adulterated food that has caused the death or illness of pets. And this is what I was speaking about before, why it's so important that we pay attention to pet food because it has a tremendous impact on humans, both because of the proximity of the, the pets in our homes and the touching of the food and the commingling of the food, and also the fact that a lot of the sourcing of ingredients for human food and for pet food is coming from the same place. And a lot of it is internationally sourced. China is a huge source of food. Um, and that's one of the reasons, because of what I'm going to talk about, the, the USA made in USA is not only for consumer products in general, but also a big selling point on food. So what I'm going to do to, is, is bring you through a, um, somewhat of the history of recalls and food withdrawals. One of the things that you should know is that most of the recall system in the United States is voluntary, even though with the passage of the Food Safety Modernization Act in 2011, which is slowly being implemented, the, the acronym for it is FSMA, F-S-M-A, which does, it, it does apply to pet food and animal food because it's not just the pets in our homes, it's also other types of animals. Uh, you also have the, the issue of um, recalls, and it's the first time that the FDA was given mandatory recall authority. Uh, prior to the Food Safety Modernization Act, the authority was generally just well, voluntary. And the idea is that the FDA could embarrass a company but with publicity, and it was always better for the company to acknowledge the fact that there's something wrong with the food, make a statement about it, recall it, and the FDA would be pretty good 
sometimes about not being too vocal. Um, and it would allow the marketing people, the, the owners of the foods, to actually give the statement that was posted by the FDA. So if you go back and look at some of the letters, and we'll look at one tonight, that the FDA sends out, very often you'll see it's written very favorably for the, the company, and you'll often have a statement by the owner of the company um, about what's happening. And, and very often it'll say, well, nobody's gotten sick. It's sort of, sort of like the movie disclaimer. There were no animals harmed. You know, in the making of this movie, the food will be recalled because of some problem with it, and very often they'll say, well, there were no, no pets were harmed. Nobody got sick. It just happened to be full of a particular E. coli, salmonella, listeria, but there was no problem. That wasn't the case, however. Oh, well, this is just a little history of um, earlier pet food recalls. There was one in 1999, and sometimes it's really upsetting when you think about some of the ingredients in food, but what we also like to think about is you know the whole movement that we eat from you know nose to tail. The pets are very good at eating things that we won't, so that's why you'll see dog treats from beef trachea, and we don't necessarily eat trachea. But the problem isn't that it's a treat from trachea. The problem is it had salmonella, and um, salmonella in a product, be it human food or or dog food is usually an indication of inadequate sanitation and somehow fecal matter has gotten mixed in with the ingredient and that should not be consumed by a pet or, or by a human. Um, in 2003, some dry, dry dog food was thought to have been sourced from a, a cow that potentially had been suffering from mad cow disease or BSE. That was a big problem. Back in those days, right now, it's, it's been fairly quiet, but that would have been something um, very noticeable and, and very adverse for the company. In 2004, we start having the presence of melamine. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and when pets eat melamine, which I'll describe soon, they wind up with, with kidney failure. And in 2007, again, you'll see this very often, uh, Crasdale, not with Crasdale, what I mean is you'll see one of the reasons for a recall will be the presence of salmonella or the presence of salmonella or, or listeria, both of them. Sometimes you have a combination of uh, things being in the pet food that shouldn't be. Listeriosis is a serious infection caused by the presence of listeria. People become ill after eating contaminated food. Um, the, the disease primarily affects pregnant women, newborns, older adults, and people with weakened immune systems. So you certainly don't want salmonella coming into your house. And um, I don't have a cat, but when I visit people who have cats, it always seems to me as a dog owner that the food is sitting around for a really long time. Cats just leave food there. Dogs don't. Um, you know, dogs, the food's gone. But you don't want salmonella in anyone's food, and certainly in cat food, if it's there for a while, it increases the possibility that there's going to be cross-contamination. So the big, big recall that was the largest recall at the time of any pet food at all 
was a problem with melamine and uh, cyanuric acid. I mispronounced that, I'm sorry. And what was happening, the reason I say the dose makes the poison is because it was the amount that, that was in the foods that turned out to be a big problem. Does anybody remember 2007? The, the, okay, the, the big, big, big recall. It was blamed on the wheat gluten. Um, wheat gluten is essentially a mixture of um, proteins that's extracted from wheat. They do a lot of washing and it removes the starch and you wind up with an ingredient that's essentially 75% protein. And that's very, very expensive. The production of wheat gluten was stopping in the U.S., and the sourcing was being moved uh, internationally, primarily to China. And wheat gluten is in pet foods because it adds protein, it binds other ingredients, and it's a thickener for the gravy-style foods. I always think of gravy train, and uh, somebody stirring it, and it makes its own gravy. Uh, so you, you had the situation where rather than sourcing the wheat gluten in the U.S., you started having a, a Canadian company that was sourcing the wheat gluten and it was coming in through a Canadian company into the U.S. and then it was being made, used to make U.S. foods that was then being distributed both in the U.S. and back in Canada and even to South Africa. So here's a little description. Um, melamine is used to make plastic. We usually have plates made of melamine. Uh, the process generates wastewater recycled into byproducts containing nitrogen. It's nitrogen which is critical here because the, the nitrogen is important for fertilizer and also for animal feed. It's the same thing with, with the acid byproduct. And if you put melamine and serineric acid together, you wind up with crystals. And what happens is if you have it in food the way it was in the menu uh, the foods that menu pet food was making, you wind up with um, pets going into kidney failure and dying because of it, uh, the renal failure. Um, I wanted to say that the source of a lot what I'm, of the information that I'm getting on the menu pets recall was uh, from, I don't know if you're familiar with Marion Nessel, she does a lot of nutrition writing and she's at NYU where I, I met her and worked with her and studied under her, but she has this wonderful book called Pet Food Politics. Uh, the subtitle is The Chihuahua in the Coal Mine, about how this was the harbinger of pet food and human food sourcing from the same ingredients and, and some of the problem with the international sourcing of ingredients from places that were not being inspected the way U.S. plants were being inspected. And her other book is great, too, Feeding Your what? Yeah, right. Feeding your pet, right? Correct. Uh, so the statistics from the menu foods recall is really kind of astounding. There were thousands of recipes on file at the, this one production plant, and Mary was talking before about what you know the difference of what they charge for different premium pet food, and what people discovered and were very unhappy to find out about menu production at, and menu foods was that the primary difference between premium and grocery dog foods was the price. That everything pretty much elsewise was the same um, and it was all being made in the same facility. It was the labels that were different. The, up, the upshot of the recall, 67 brands of cat food, 64 brands of dog food, 
18 companies, 200 brands in total, and 5,300 product lines. It was an enormous recall because the, the wheat gluten had wound up in hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of different brand lines. Um, Menu Foods created a hotline. Now, we're 2007, so we're, we're not exactly where we are now in terms of customer service or Facebook or, or websites, although 2007 is, is still pretty sophisticated in terms of social media. So Menu Foods put in a hotline, and they recorded 47,000 calls from pet owners for the first weekend it was open. And by the end of the first week, they had over 200,000 calls from people complaining about their pets becoming ill. The, the interesting thing about the way the illnesses and deaths were reported is this was the, the first instance in which bloggers were relied upon for information. The FDA was entirely overwhelmed with what was going on. Menu Foods was not handling it particularly well, and they couldn't because of the size of the recall and the number of people simply needed to answer phones. So this is a situation where you had pet bloggers and other kinds of information being available on the internet where people, you know, petconnection.com I think started then, and uh, people who were gathering the information about what was going on with the illnesses and deaths that were being reported. So when you see that I have a range here of reported illness or death being between 14,000 and 17,000, the 14,000 would be what, what the bloggers or other sources were getting, and the 17,000 was what the FDA was receiving. But when you look at the deaths confirmed by the FDA, the official count was 17 or 18, which obviously is woefully inadequate, but when the confirmation requires uh, you know, autopsy results or um, the, the food itself, uh, you know, used food, and the, the FDA is a very high standard of confirm how a death or causation, in legal terms, of what caused this pet's death, it, it was very, very, very low. Um, although the companies were acknowledging that um, the cat deaths were generally outrunning the dogs in the beginning because they're so much smaller, so they were suffering the most from uh, the kidney failure. Again, the, you know, the, the poison is in the dose, um, and dog deaths as well. So this is the beginning of why you suddenly started seeing a lot of companies saying only U.S. sourced foods because people were afraid to have ingredients sourced elsewhere, especially since China at the time, the food safety was almost non-existent, certainly in its infancy, and there wasn't the kind of stringent requirements on food imports that you have now, and certainly that you have with the Food Safety Modernization Act. So that was the, the big recall that, that started a lot of problems. We're not finished with recalls. Um, what I did here was I, this is just screenshots from the FDA website. The FDA, has, uh, the veterinary section has recalls on pet foods, has the brand name, the product description, and the reason, and the company. Um, obviously, we're still having plenty of them in 2018. Sometimes the, the names are just interesting marketing. Uh, Dr. King's Rad Cat Performance Dog. The, I highlighted what the problem is, Salmonella, Listeria. 
Um, we have elevated non-protein nitrogen, which is sort of a wink at, you know, here we are with some sort of substance that is assaying as, as nitrogen. What happened, by the way, the reason they weren't picking up the problem with the, the melamine in the food is that they weren't looking for plastics. What they, the pet food officials and import officials were actually looking for nitrogen. And because the melamine has nitrogen in it, uh, it would assay as the, the wheat gluten would assay as if it had the, the amount of protein it was supposed to because it had a high level of nitrogen. And this apparently was an old trick that used to be used for, for farm animals. If it wasn't too much, then it wouldn't make the animals ill. So the, the, the story in pet food politics of how the, the FDA and, and the various um, bloggers actually and veterinarians helped discover what was the problem is, is fascinating to read. We have, what else do we have? Dave's pet food, and we've got more E. coli, which is pretty serious, and listeria, salmonella, and true dog, and vital essentials, and um, Vita Prima, canine natural, there's natural, and that's got listeria in it. Uh, that's why it was recalled. But this one in particular, I have all in red, um, just because I find it to be, I don't know if, there's irony here or not, but we have natural selections because it's Darwin's natural pet food, but it may have salmonella and E. coli. So I'm just thinking of the natural selection of surviving eating this food. And I will read to you. Um, the reason there's that, the different color, the link is if you're actually on the website at FDA, if you can link, they link to the, the letters that go out from the FDA about the recalls. And remember, I said most of them are voluntary. So this is a little bit dense, but I've highlighted. This is actually the letter from Darwin's Natural that it gets posted on the FDA recall website. So they make it clear that it's a voluntary recall and that there may be salmonella and E. coli, which can be serious in so, and sometimes fatal infections. Um, this Darwin's pet food is actually a subscription pet food, so uh, customers were being notified through Darwin's. And this is what the FDA gets very upset and cautious about. It can affect animals eating the, the product, but there's a risk to humans from handling contaminated pet products, especially if they have not thoroughly washed their hands after having contact with the products or any services, surfaces exposed to these products. If you're a label reader, you know that chicken, meat, any kind of raw product now is replete with all of these instructions to wash your hands, wash the surface, don't cross-contaminate. And it's the, the same idea that you're responsible as the pet owner to take care that you don't become infected. Um, of course, the question would be, why can't a consumer expect a pet food not to be infected with salmonella or listeria? or E. coli, but the onus is also placed on, on you, the pet owner, to be careful to not only protect your pet, but protect yourself and your family by washing your hands, especially if you have raw food. Uh, this go, and the letter goes on to say that 
Healthy pets usually aren't affected by salmonella or by uh, even necessarily E. coli, but they can be carriers um, and infect other animals or humans. Um, the E. coli can be pretty serious and it's known to cause illness in dogs and cats. Well, it's unknown, I'm sorry, to cause illness in dogs and cats, but infected animals be can become carriers and transfer it. And again, I think of the cats walking through the cat litter and then walking on the table, which is one reason I don't have a cat. <laughs> but obviously there are a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity to spread whatever it is that might be in the food that shouldn't be there. Um, what's notable here is Darwin's founder and president has not received any reports of illness in pets who consumed the food to date. Um, while we believe the risk to dogs consuming our products is low, we are sensitive to the FDA's concern for humans who might become exposed to the pathogens through handling the raw meats. And then again, it tells you, you know, the product label tells you to wash your hands and follow food safety guidelines. So that's also sort of a nod to any lawyers that may be thinking of suing us. We have on our product label all the instructions of safe handling, and if you didn't follow it, then maybe you've got some of the responsibility for that. This is um, just a slide that tells you that the Food Safety Modernization Act does apply to animal food, that the final rule has been implemented, and they're starting to uh, make sure that different aspects of, the, of FISMA are carried out, um, and it requires food production plants to have food safety plans in place, which makes it very much like a human food facility. And then this is what, what Mary was talking about. You can see the very last bullet is FDA has issued a draft guidance on human food byproducts for use as animal food. Um, and the, this guidance applies only to byproducts of human food processing. So you can take a look at the draft guidance if you're interested in the specifics of the what facilities that are producing byproducts, human by food byproducts can, must do. The thing to keep in mind though, um, draft guidances are put out so that people can comment on them and you can access draft guidances, especially if they're open for comment on regulations.gov. It's a website where anything that's pending regulatory wise can be um, commented upon. It's really simple, it's just you can uh, send electronically your comment to the, to the FDA or whatever agency is soliciting uh, comments on regulations. The one thing to know also is that the draft guidance will become the fi uh, uh, guidance and it doesn't have any enforcement power. It's just suggestions and reflects the current thinking of what the particular agency is doing at the time, but most companies will follow a guidance that's issued by the FDA. So I'm going to move on from there to uh, pet food litigation. And there are certain things that we have to think about, both about when pets become ill because of the, the adulterated food that we just spoke about, an adulterant is something that's not supposed to be in the food. And do we follow the path of basic deceptive and misleading advertising in some of the examples that Mary gave us and some other ad, um, examples that we can look at with litigation, or do we try to follow the course of an injury? 
that if the cat or dog suffers illness or is killed by a by eating a particular food, is that going to be the basis for a lawsuit? And these are some of the things um, that you have to think about. Although they're they're pet our we're pet guardians and they are fur babies, pets are considered property. So the idea that there's going to be a lot of sympathy or a big monetary gain because of emotional distress for you, which isn't going to be considered, or even the kind of agony that a pet might go through if they're going to come down with um, a sickness from salmonella or go into renal failure, that is really not going to move the courts the way it's going to move pet owners. And while pet owners are a substantial portion of the population, the legal community still is not convinced that this is really a very important aspect of uh, the law or, or that pet food litigation is quote unquote legitimate. One of the problems that you have with sick pets, I mean sometimes they'll recover vet bills or, or replacement of the food which of course is no consolation to a parent, a pet parent who has lost a pet to contaminated food to get a coupon to go buy more of the same food. It's sort of like what happens in class actions with human food where, or a product where you reject it because it's no good but you, the result of a class action is called a coupon settlement. It's here, here's a coupon to go buy some more of it. Well, certainly if I think that a particular brand of food has harmed my pet, the last thing I want is replacement food from the same company. It's also very, very difficult to prove that a pet has died because of this particular product. You might need an autopsy, you might need an expert, you might need uh, the vet to testify, you might need uh, the actual food if you've saved the food. And even if you have all of that, it's really difficult to prove. And when and you're dealing with a class action, it's almost in the nature of a mass tort. Uh, that's like a civil wrong. It, it's not like Bhopal where you have mass destruction of, of human life. These are pets and their property. And I, I think there has not been any movement away from that that, that is discernible. So sometimes the, the tack that litigators will take is it's a false or misleading advertising claim makes a much stronger case. You don't have to show causation and as we've seen from Mary's examples, obviously the claims being made on pet food mimic human food claims with similar deception, um, outrageous claims and uh, claims that are, are misleading. And that, that's considered to be more mainstream litigation if people can look at a, a pet food label and say, well, that's clearly misleading or deceptive. And then, of course, the question is whether or not it's material. Um, and then you have to also look and see if it's just puffery. You know, the first ingredient is truth or, or the, the flying pets or animals. You just have to use some common sense or what we call the, you know, the rational consumer, the reasonable, reasonable. consumer, the reasonable consumer. So these are some examples of um, pet food litigation. And I wanted to give a shout out to a, a litigator, um, Kim Richmond of the Richmond Law Group, who's done a lot of litigation in, in this particular area. 
Uh, Purina made Benefil kibble, and they were finding propylene glycol and mycotoxins in the food, and the plaintiffs were saying that their dogs became ill. Five dogs, one dead, three very, very sick, and another one that recovered but is still having seizures. Um, but the company managed to successfully challenge the experts that the plaintiffs came forward with and have essentially one of the, the arguments that you'll hear is it's just either they can't find it at all, so we don't know where the plaintiffs even get this information from, or that what's showing up in the food is in such infinitesimally small amounts that it's not going to hurt anyone. Or they'll say it's naturally occurring. Um, or it'll fit under the rule that Mary was talking about uh, with synthetics. This is um, another pet food litigation. And what happened here was Avengers pet food, dog and cat food, uh, pets were getting sick and dying. And they discovered, the FDA actually did an investigation in addition to the plaintiffs, and they found pentobarbital in the pet food. And it's a barbiturate. I'm sorry. Oh, oh I shocking. thought you said I had to go no, faster. No. Okay. Um, We're good on time. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a barbiturate used to euthanize animals, including horses. So that led to the uh, supposition, and it was ultimately shown that there was horse meat in the Avengers pet food, even though Avengers didn't list horse meat and claim that they would never use horse meat. In fact, they were claiming that they had human-grade food and humans don't eat food, eat horses, so we don't have human-grade horse food, uh, horse meat rather. Um, and what the action is is it's false and deceptive advertising since horse meat isn't listed on the label, which seems rather self-evident. But you have to come up with the various claims that you think are going to be successful in court. And in the meantime, Avengers is suing its supplier for damages and trying to put the onus on the suppliers saying we never ordered or a claim that we would put horse meat into our food. So our supplier, somewhat along the lines of the melamine supplier, gave us something that we didn't ask for. And it's their fault that it was in the food. Sorry, what, what year is that? What year? It's pending now. Oh, yeah, it's currently pending now. Um, Rachel Ray. Everybody knows Rachel Ray? And she makes a dog food called Nutrish. Um, the problem is it's got glyphosate in it. And glyphosate is also known as Roundup. And Roundup, that made by Monsanto, already has a lot of problems in terms of its reputation safety in some areas. And now Roundup, or glyphosate, is being used for a purpose other than just killing weeds. It's actually being sprayed onto crops to dry them, it's a desiccant. And this hastens the drying and does it in a more uniform way so you don't ne the farmer doesn't necessarily have to wait for natural conditions for the crops to dry. And the glyphosate is showing up not only in pet food but also in human food because Quaker Oats, there was a litigation about that, that there was um, traces of glyphosate. And the argument is that it's not natural so even though there may not be a definition of natural, no one is going to think that the chemicals that are being used in Roundup are actually 
natural. And the, the interesting thing about, uh, this is in the Southern District of New York, but the same type of litigation is going on in California. And what's happening here is that the defendants took a look at the AFCO definition that Mary talked about before of natural. And each state can regulate its pet food as long as it doesn't contradict whatever the federal government is doing. The federal government doesn't have a definition of natural. It's one of the problems. There's been a lot of litigation with human food to the point where the parties in a lawsuit have actually, the judge, in fact, three judges, I think we had the situation where the judges wrote to the FDA and said, we have litigation here where our plaintiffs are saying that the claims of natural food are um, misleading and deceptive because of this ingredient, that ingredient, and the defendants are saying, well, there is no definition of natural, so we can't be held liable. And the judges said to the FDA, would you please help us out here and come up with a definition? And the response was, we're really sorry, but we're really busy at the FDA and we don't have time to come up with a definition of natural. They've moved off of that and they've actually, I think they're taking comments um, on what natural, sh how natural should be defined, but they haven't come up with an answer yet. So we're in a situation where we don't have a federal definition of natural. We have an AFCO definition of natural that uh, Rachel Ray's company, or the company that makes Rachel Ray's food, says we fit within that definition and the state of California has adopted the AFCO definition. So they actually, the defendants, make it, the dog food makers, petitioned the state of California to say, you've just informally adopted the AFCO definition. We're asking you to come up with a regulation that formalizes the definition of natural that the AFCO definition is, and that will allow for some of the glyphosate residue that's in the product to be considered natural. So the California court won't do work if it doesn't have to. I mean, that's kind of a natural way. Judges don't want to decide things they don't have to. So while the California Department of Public Health is contemplating what to do, they actually held hearings on what should be natural in dog food. The court has done Am I talking? I don't know if I'm speaking to lawyers or lay people, but they've stayed the action. They've essentially said, we're not going to consider this any further until California goes ahead and, and makes up its mind. Now, maybe the federal government will make up its mind what natural is, too, but right now that's on hold. So pet food litigation has been coming, and it, it's out there, but it hasn't necessarily been very successful. And now I'm going to move on to a part that I'll try not to laugh, but obviously pets need the same care as we do. I mean, pet food is aimed at pet parents, so, so are pet remedies and supplements. And we have issues with aging and aches and pains and pets are slowing down, and we're not just going to look at the physical attributes of aging pets, but we're going to be curious about how we can improve their memories, their mental acuity, and literally learning new tricks and, and reverting to old ones. Um, has anyone seen, I'm sure you've seen commercials for 
how we as we age can keep our minds sharp well this is this is for dogs and cats as well so this is Purina um, and the one on the the lower right I just find I don't know if anybody's ever had a small male dog but one of the happier moments of having a male puppy grow up is they're no longer acting like a male puppy anymore. So the question of what if your older dog could think more like his younger self is, I'm not so excited about that based on what my younger male dog used to do. Um, and what if you're a what if you could feed your dog's body and mind? So this is part and parcel of the karma and the I, I, yeah, the holistic and the idea that we're going to do things for our pets that we would do for ourselves. Um, I'm going to switch over to show you the actual ads, but before I go there, um, there's one more thing that's going on. I don't know if anybody's been paying attention to cannabinoids and CBDs for people. So, of course, there are cannabinoid products for pets. One is called Canapet. Um, are they legal and, and what are the claims? Well, it depends. The legality depends on who you ask. If you ask any government entity like the FDA or your local health department, um, they'll tell you they're not legal. Sorry. Um, and the cannabinoid makers will tell you, of course it's legal. No problem. Don't worry about it. You can go on the website and they say it's legal. And then what are the claims that they're making? Well. Here's um, from which the name? What's the name of the company? I can't. I can't see the. I think it's up there. Anyway, dogs naturally. It, that could be it. Um, I was looking at several of them, and I, I unfortunately didn't put that URL up here. But this is what the company that's making these CBD, the cannabinoid for dogs, is saying. Um, and this is about the oils. It's not psychoactive. It doesn't have THC, so they don't get high. But it reduces anxiety, fights cancer, treats seizures and epilepsy, relieves pain, can help with inflammatory bowel disease, reduces chronic inflammation and autoimmune disease, protects the nervous system and help with neurodegenerative diseases, increases appetite and helps with nausea, and promotes cardiovascular health. And the bonus is it's legal and safe, except it's not. Uh, it may be safe, but it's not legal. Uh, in fact, even today there was a special report from one of the food websites that sends out um, newsletters talking about what you know what's the story with these CBDs and cannabinoids so I guess it depends which website you go to whether or not it's going to be considered legal um, people are also claiming the same types of really fantastic effects from taking the CBDs uh, and I don't know I can't vouch one way or the other about whether or not the CBDs do this. It seems like it's sort of going into panacea territory, but I guess time will tell whether or not the CBDs do turn out to be um, a successful remedy both for people and for pets. So with that being said, let's see if I can show you. Um, I'm supposed to escape from here. Uh-oh. And then go down to here. 
And let's see if we can show you one of the ads. This is for Bright Mind. Decision making in your dog. <laughs> Visible results in 30 days. thinking about my dog's memory. And now there is, these are testimonials that you'll find in typical advertising. She wants to see what's going on in the world. She's just back. Even our other dogs. <laughs> I don't know what the pricing is on this, but I would be fairly confident to state that it's going to be more expensive than your basic supermarket dog food. Um, I don't know that we want to see any more, so I, I'm done. Um, and we'll, oops. You could just close out of the website. <laughs> that works. That'll do it. Okay. And we're happy to answer any questions you may have as to the best of our ability. Yeah, so I just want to thank you both for your really informative, thought-provoking, and really um, also shocking presentation. I mean, um, my reaction when you were talking about the barbiturates found in the, the food from coming from horse meat or the other products that could be found in food that aren't disclosed, it's really horrifying. Um, you you want to do the best for your pet and with the limited information and resources out there that could be really difficult to do and it's good to hear about recent um, litigation where people try and, and well attorneys um, and government is trying to enforce um, the standards that do exist. Um, and with that in mind I am curious just before we open it up to the audience for questions um, I think you're really focusing on the, the federal laws and the FDA um, and AFCO. Do we have any local, whether state or city laws, um, that regulate pet food? We do have New York Do you want to put law. your... Yeah, and I actually wrote down... No, you have to put oh. your... 
We do, we do have New York state laws regulating pet food. I actually wrote down the citation in case that were to come up. Um, the New York State Department of Health has a, a citation. Oh, well, I can follow up on that. But yes, the answer is there are New York state uh, laws regulating pet food um, that do adopt some of the AFCO definitions. Um, and AFCO, as we said, the reason we focused on it is because it is the model regulation for, for many states. So, I mean, in addition to specific pet food regulations, as Ellen and I were talking about, I mean, there are the potential for deceptive advertising claims as well, depending on what claims are being made, which could be made under our general deceptive practices cases. That, again, is my personal view. It does not reflect the view of my office at, well, is, at all. It is just me brainstorming on that. Well, the litigation is being brought under New York laws, state statutes. Not they, It usually doesn't cite to, cases don't necessarily cite to the, the state law, except for the case in California, where they're now asking the state of California to adopt the AFCO standard. Generally, it will be based on basic consumer deception laws, state laws, and then wind up in federal court because of the diversity jurisdiction. Interesting. All right, so I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience, and I'm going to repeat your question um, as we are recording our program. Uh, Lori. I have a question about the definition of pet that the FDA uses. Is it limited to dogs and cats, or does it include companion animals the way it's defined in the New York State well, not so. Sorry, just going to oh. repeat the question. Thanks. <laughs> so the question is about the the definition of FDA uh, pet food under the FDA. You looked like you were going to answer. Uh, I was going to answer that. Uh, I do not believe it is limited to dogs and cats. It, it is, is meant to um, apply to all animal feeds. That's my understanding. And in fact, at one point, I went to the pet store to check on this, and you do, do see a lot of the same label items on, let's say, bird food or or hamster food. So it's not limited to dogs and cats. Right, ferrets, snakes, anything that people keep as pets, and you can go buy the food for. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Mary, could you talk briefly about grain-free pet foods? And um, oh. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, if there's some legal origin for um, that being something that appears on a lot of products these days. Yeah, I think we forgot to cover I, I forgot to cover yeah, that. Yeah, sorry. Talk about that. Yeah. So thank um, you for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> Once there was the problem with the melamine showing up in grains, there was a big movement to get grain out of dog food. And that has been succeeded by the gluten-free craze that we take gluten out of our diets, so we're certainly going to take it out of dog diets. So you'll see a lot of advertisements claiming um, it's best to be grain-free because dogs in their natural state never ate grains and it causes them to be bloated and have allergies to it and all sorts of terrible things could happen from dogs eating the fillers like corn or wheat and we are in a grain-free environment not just a wheat-free environment but grain-free environment but it's gotten to the point where the FDA recently issued a warning to pet owners that it appears 
that going grain-free and relying on lentils and peas and I think potatoes was the other ingredient in dog food to the extent that people have been relying on that has resulted in indications that it's causing coronary issues in dogs. So of course all the grain-free makers of dog foods are saying, no, FDA, you're absolutely wrong. How could you, what study did you use? It's not, it's junk science, it's not reliable. Grain-free doesn't cause heart ailments, but that's where we are right now on grain and no grain in dog food. And cat food, I think, too, yes. right? I don't know if it's carried over to gluten-free bird seed um, or things, although birdseed got into a lot of trouble, and I digress here over, um, I don't know if anybody followed the whole issue having to do with hemp and the legalization of hemp story. Well, it's very convoluted, and it's, it's very interesting because of its connection um, with drugs, and hemp is actually a Schedule I narcotic drug, but in any event, there was bird seed being imported from Canada that had hemp seeds in it, and that was declared illegal because they were afraid the birds would get high on the hemp seeds or the hemp seeds would be viable and people could use them. I'm digressing here, but um, I don't, there, there are all kinds of issues. That was one issue with bird seed, but I don't think there was an issue with gluten or wheat um, in bird seed. Anyway. I'm going to say the latter. It pretty much operates in a different world. You've got the farm aspect of it and just the, the scale of it. So even the regulations that deal with the um, FISMA um, are, are broken into different areas when it comes. Pet food is a very specialized area. What about, you mentioned that sometimes pet food is, um, that are extras or sent back, is then fed um, to farm animals. Is there anything controlling that? And do you have anything more to say on that? Well, there was a lot of concern when the melamine scandal broke because the feeling was, it, well, it was known that the pet food, not because it was being recalled at the time, but just because the, for whatever reason there was extra salvaged that it was fed to pigs and to fish, actually. Fish farms received some of that pet food and also to chickens. And the FDA was very concerned and actually quarantined uh, the chickens and the, the pigs, but eventually let them go into the human food supply, feeling that by the time they were processed and, and got to us, it wouldn't cause any problems. So recalled food is not supposed to go to be fed to farm animals. Does anybody control it? Well, I, you know, hopefully 
they do, the same way they hopefully take recall food products off of shelves. Often you find it there, though. So it's, it's not a perfect process, but it's supposed to be regulated. <laughs> what standards, if any, govern heavy metals like, for example, mercury and fish, which um, is an issue regarding human fish and certainly cat food? There, there, um, the FDA will put out standards of what percentage parts per million you're allowed to have. There's a lawsuit pending right now, I think, about um, just that, toxic heavy metals that are being found in dog foods, um, and the defense is that it's within the parameters that are permitted by the FDA. So they do allow them. It's supposed to not exceed a certain level. But the natural people are saying, you know, it doesn't matter to us if you allow them to be in there, but if you're going to call it all natural, that shouldn't be an ingredient. That's where the fight comes in. Thank you. Um, do you know very much about vegan dog foods as they're being sort of, I think it's sort of like a new no. thing, but I today was actually looking at vegan dog food for my dog. Um, it's a lifestyle that I live by, so I'm just curious what you know about it, manufacturing, if you know anything. I'm just shooting from the hip here, but I would think it would have to meet all of the criteria for nutritional. Okay, so they must be putting together a product that meets whatever guidelines they have to. Um, yeah, I imagine with vegan products, a lot of, especially those green marketing claims that we focused on might come into play. The natural, the organic, mm -hmm. I imagine you'll see that a lot more in those types of product lines as well, things to be aware of. Um, it's interesting, though, how the labeling rules we talked about, like the with the 25% uh, you know, dinner rule, like how that comes into play when there's no meat products in it. Um, so that would be I mm -hmm. think, interesting to, to study further. Also, I'm thinking about a commercial I just saw. I can't remember what food it was for, but it had something to do with satisfying the wolf in your dog and why it was so important to have to have meat, you know, real dogs don't eat grain or <laughs> something, I don't know. So no, I had not heard of vegan dog food. Okay, I, I'm, I'm curious. Do you I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you know offhand what the, the first ingredients are in the vegan dog food? Um, or? I think some boast pea protein. Mm. I would go and take a look at the FDA alert regarding peas and lentils and potatoes being the primary ingredients potentially leading to heart disease. So you might want to check that out before you switch your pet to vegan. A uh, related question, you know, you, you spoke about foods claiming that they provide a balanced diet. Um, what methods or tools do they have for enforcing that and, and who is um, checking or doing studies to confirm the claims that, that one food can pre provide a balanced diet for a pet? Well, I think when it comes to these types of claims, we look at them as we would with other false advertising claims, which is whether there is substantiation. So if there, that ever became an issue, uh, we assume that the manufacturer would um, have substantiation for those claims, but you know, sometimes mm -hmm. that's not a correct assumption. 
so you know that's something that I imagine if there were specific consumer complaints that would come up or if um, the FDA had decided or the states had to decide to do some kind of inspection of it, right. that substantiation would have to be shown. That's where it would become an issue. Mm -hmm. And, and the, you said inspections. Uh, I would think that there are inspections of plants from time to time in manufacturers and there will be tests of the product to see if they comply and to make sure that they're not contaminated or misbranded or things of that nature. And, and I think with private lawsuits as well, sometimes they, like you said, they hire experts and do their own testing of foods, uh, you know, when bringing, you know, private lawsuits. So I guess that's another way that it could be tested whether these companies have the substantiation that they're claiming. Yes. <laughs> I am really nervous now thinking about the dog food that I'm giving to my dog. Do you have a recommendation for a consumer guide that we can go to? Are they rated? Is there something, a resource where we can find something that's good? Oh, there, there are endless sources. Um, I just enjoy the name of Bark Magazine. I don't know. Love if Bark Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they do something like that. I'm sure there are all sorts of websites. I I couldn't even begin to recommend anything to you one way or the other. So um, yeah, I I cannot recommend any websites per se. I don't want you to go home and refer to a website and blame me if it turns out to be misinformation. <laughs> but um, there is a website out there, uh, TruthInPetFood.com, which focuses on these <laughs> issues. I don't know how that happens. Somebody's <laughs> unhappy with that. Okay. They're listening. Right. <laughs> yes. That's why we don't want to make recommendations. But um, I found that blog to be interesting. But like I said, I can't you know necessarily claim that that's the best source. But there are many blogs out there, and uh, I'm sure if you did research, there's probably you know, even books written on the subject. I don't know if Consumer Reports has done that. I was just going to think about that Consumer might be a Reports. Good source. And Mary mentioned Marian Nestle's book, What to, you know, Feed Your Pet Right. Um, I think she's a very reliable, credible source, and you might want to take a look at that. It may be, I don't remember when it was published, but uh, it's probably... 2007, so, uh, excuse me, 2010. So it's a little bit, um, it needs a little bit of updating as far as the, the most recent... Uh, standards, but um, I think it's a great resource to walk you through all the different considerations when choosing a pet food. You know, even though there have been some updates in the AFCO regulations since then, the the thinking process that she talks about in the book and in deciding between different foods, I think, can be very helpful. All of her books are a great resource. In the the FDA website, there would be information published there if there's any recalls. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that might be a way of weeding some foods out or brands. Well, that's very true. You can go and see whether or not a food that you're considering has been recalled or has had any problems. I think, no. you, I think you can subscribe to FDA alerts on recalls. Yes, so you can. That's something else to do if you're not already doing that. Uh, that's a good question. Whether the the question was whether the veterinary uh, associations have any standards. Uh, 
As far as I understand, the AFCO standards are the ones that most states are using to govern pets in addition to the FDA regulations, but it would be interesting to see if the veterinary associations have commented on any particular foods or trends. That could certainly be something to, to follow up on. You might, if you go there, I would suggest, because I haven't done it, yeah. um, take a look at what they have to say about CBDs and cannabinoids and using those for pets. I know when I asked my veterinarian because our dog was having some um, neurological issues. She's 14, so that's to be expected. A golden retriever at 14 is, you know, expected to slow down a little bit. We haven't fed her bright minds, so she can, <laughs> oh, that's your problem, she can be her younger <laughs> self again. I don't know if I want that younger self back either, but uh, his concern, the vet's concern, was that it's not regulated to the point where you have no idea what kind of dosage you're giving, uh, so that what he didn't say it didn't work, but there might be some concern about you know, how you dose the dog with the the CBDs. But. Can you just speak briefly um, while you're on the topic of cannabinoids about other supplements um, that might be added to a pet's diet? Um, I know that's a pretty broad question, but there's a lot of vitamins or other maybe like herbal remedies or other supplements that could be added to a pet's food, and if that falls under the same kinds of rules and regulations that you've already covered? Pet supplements? Oh, well, there are very few rules and regulations about human supplements. It's sort right. of the Wild West, so the pet supplements, I don't, does AFCO do anything? Um, well, I do know that the FDA has issued some guidance I have to check if it's guidance or draft guidance at this point about foods that uh, claim to maintain urinary tract health or to, uh, you know, assist with pets that have various ailments. I think diabetes is one of them. And um, they have certain foods that they are recommending if the food is supposed to assist with those specific medical conditions that they be prescribed by veterinarians in particular. So I know I know at least for those types of foods they're supposed to be, you know, supplements are supposed to be treating specific conditions. The FDA is, you know, has put some attention to those issues. Um, as far as the other supplements, I don't know if there's um, other rules that might I come into either. play here. Yeah, no. that's something for us to expand on this discussion, I guess. But I would imagine you would find every supplement for pets that you can find for humans. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> yeah, and, and I do know that the AFCO um, guidelines, when they have the natural definition, they do talk about, you know, what if it makes claims like natural along with, you know, certain supplements for, for pets, and they talk about that as being a sort of a disclaimer, not necessarily something to boast mm -hmm. about, that, that that might be something that would uh, be an exception to the natural claim that the food is making. So that's another way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. Do you have a question? Yes. yes. Thank you very much, ladies. Very informative. Learned a lot today. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, this one's more for you. I heard yeah. you have a cat. Yes, um, two I, cats. I have two as well. <laughs> and uh, I've, been, uh, I've been told for many years pretty much that I have to feed uh, my cat uh, um, pet food because it's very well balanced, as you just mentioned. Uh, but I've been moving away from uh, the pet food and making my own food. I was just curious. Just out of curiosity, what do you use? Because my cats, for example, they like uh, cucumbers, and mm. I, if they're not harmful, I'm feeding them. But I was just curious, like, what would, what would you, what do you do? Mm. 
Well, I, um, in making that comment, I, I should have clarified that there is nothing formal about the human food that I'm giving to my pets. They tend to like to eat a lot of what I'm eating, including French fries at times. So I am not, um, I am not the person to consult about using <laughs> foods that you know aren't on the market to supplement your your pet's diet i would be a very poor example but once again i'm sure there are plenty of blogs and and websites and and books including marion nestle's books that could give you some you know guidelines you know for people who would prefer to make their own pet food instead of you know relying on the pet food that's on the market and perhaps what you know supplements you might want to think about adding to making sure they get balanced nutrition uh, it's a question that I just, you know, wouldn't be able to answer, and I would be a terrible role model um, for that. There's also a large contingent of people who believe that raw food is really important, so uh, raw food diets are touted quite a bit as being better for dogs and commercial foods, uh, and I don't know, do cats get raw foods too, maybe? I think there are raw food raw diets. Food diets. Yeah. Wild yeah. Also. Right, that's right. And then you have to be careful again about the fact that it's a raw food. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned about the, the vet because there was a lawsuit. It was not successful that there was um, science diet and prescription mm -hmm. food, but you didn't need a prescription for it. You could just, and that was claimed to be false advertising, and the judge just threw it out. <laughs> and said, no. I suppose there it's it's caveat emptor. If you want to go buy prescription food, but you know you don't have a prescription for it, then what are you complaining <laughs> about? Yeah. I didn't read the decision, but I'm just kind of guessing that. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, thank you again for such an informative and eye-opening presentation. Um, and for the attention from our audience and really excellent questions. And, and also before I end, I just wanted to thank one of our audience members, Stephanie Felt, who's a fellow committee member and the Animal Law Committee who helped plan this presentation tonight. Um, and I just want to ask if anyone has any follow-up questions. I don't know if you are, are willing to provide your, your contact or you can come up and we'll be available to answer some questions informally just for a few minutes um, sure. tonight. So thank you all again and have a great night. <laughs>